This week on The Futurist, Dr. Sabina Stanley. We're going to find signs of life on the moon Titan in the 20, late 2030s, early 2040s. Hey, welcome back to The Futurist. I'm Rob Tursick, and started, joining me this week in the co-host chair is Brett King, back from his world adventures. Hi, Brett. <laughs> you always say that, but that's just like my life is a world adventure, I guess, right? I guess so, that's true. Actually, every time yeah. I catch up with you, it is like you're just getting back for another adventure. Um, I, I did have to, um, you know, we, we discussed on the last uh, podcast we did together about the whole visa problems I had. But um, yeah. it, so even with the pandemic, um, and, and, and in, in some respects, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this, but um, I had to detail all of the countries I'd visited you know, for my visa application <laughs> in the, for the last five years. Guess yeah. guess what the number was? I'm going to guess. Five years. I'm going to guess it's in the high double digits. I'm going to say 65. Was, well, you were very close with 63. Holy cow. That 63 is countries in five so, years. So I do. Okay, so that helps. For the people who are listening to the show, problem. every time I see Brett when he's back from a trip, I'm like, oh, you've been traveling. So now people understand the the, the amount, the, the value extent of, of, of that. But yeah, I'm trying to. I'm obviously trying to trim that down for get, get it under reasons. control, man. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but um, we always we always talk about science fiction on this show. We ask every guest about their favorite science fiction books or what inspired them yeah. in science fiction and so forth. And sometimes when you talk about the beginnings of science fiction, people will say, "Well, it's uh, it's um, it's Mary Shelley, it's Frankenstein. That's the first right. science fiction book, right?" Um, but but there's another contender that we overlooked and we haven't heard much from uh, our guests on the show about. And it's Jules Verne. And Jules Verne, in some ways, is the really the first uh, person to apply Victorian science to fiction. And of course, famously, you know, his books include Around the World in 80 Days and so on. But famously, it's a journey to the center of the earth. And whenever we uh, whenever we we talk about science fiction books, probably talking about going to other planets. But Verne had the notion of going into you know, the yeah. subterranean and figuring out what's on the inside of the planet Earth. And uh, and of course, that book has all sorts of great adventures, like a giant underground sea and mastodons uh, with prehistoric humans hurting them and so forth. And I've always been curious about that as a kid, because I grew up reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Pellucidar series, which was inspired by those uh, by those Jules Verne stories. So that that's kind of like another origin story, another take on the beginnings of sci-fi, uh, not about, you know, combining technologies together and creating kind of weird human uh, thing, which I guess we're doing today with AI. Uh, you know, in some respects, or robotics, um, but the notion of like de exploring deeper the world that we actually live in. The funny thing about that is that that book was written uh, 150 years ago, and the interior of the planet still remains a mystery to most of us. Mm, uh, yeah. Very little insight on it, and so for that reason, we thought it'd be useful and helpful for our audience to bring a real expert on the subject, uh, someone who's at the very front of, forefront of research. Our guest today is uh, the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins University. She is a physicist, and she's studying the interiors of planets. Uh, Dr. Sabina Stanley, welcome to The Futurist. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Fantastic. Tell, tell us a little bit more about your areas of research at Johns Hopkins, and how did you get there? Yeah, I'm really into trying to understand what happens inside the planets. And I do that with a lot of computational modeling of the processes going on in planets, in particular, how they make their magnetic fields. That's kind of what I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, but I kind of, I got into this field because of some luck, I think, some 
uh, great advice and support from mentors who happened to be near the field I was in. It wasn't something that I knew I wanted to go into when I was young. I kind of just, I knew, I knew I liked science. I knew I liked math. You didn't, you didn't feel like yourself being drawn to the center of the earth for some reason. No, although it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because I actually grew up in an impact crater. So, oh. <laughs> okay. There you go. So about one You're a little 8, closer than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But about 1.8 billion years ago, this giant meteor hit the surface of the earth in the town in Northern Ontario in Canada called Sudbury. Um, and it caused a huge hole and that got filled with resources from deeper inside the earth. And then it became a mining town, which is what became Sudbury. And so I feel like even though I didn't really recognize it at the time, I think my subconscious was absorbing all the signs around it saying, you should study planets. They're really cool. Right. On. I mean, there's I mean, been um, huge advances in this, uh, um, you know, uh, like understanding of, of planetary structures and so forth. You know, I, I've, I've noted recently, for example, that, um, you know, our view of the core of, of the Earth is is um, advanced significantly in recent times. And the fact that we now know that there's this big bulge in the core left over from, um, you know, presumably the impact of what became the moon um, with with the Earth. But uh, even the fact that, um, you know, as you're describing, you've got this entire mining industry built off uh, the the impact crater of, of um, you know, an asteroid. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, a lot of materials have come from from these impacts over time as well. So, you know, we we seem to be learning so much more about this field in in just sort of the recent decades. Is that is that your feeling that um you know, we're sort of going ahead in leaps and bounds at the moment? Absolutely. What's fascinating to me in my field is that every time they launch a new mission to a planet, we have to completely rewrite the textbook about that yeah, planet. Yeah, yeah, oh. it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so what we discover in other planets informs what we understand about the planet Earth. Oh yeah, absolutely. Tell me how that works. So I think it's important to remember that all the planets kind of formed from the same material, right? So we're all, I like to think of them kind of like family members, right? So you know how you can kind of tell a lot about yourself by looking at your immediate family members. It's a similar sort of thing for planets. So when we are able to study Mars, for example, and learn something about its interior, that's telling us something about Earth's interior as well. Yeah, I mean this one this is one of the reasons I never got the whole flat earth argument cuz all you need to do to see how planets form is look in you know through a fairly basic telescope into the sky and see all the other planets we can see are spherical, you know, and But and not so this one. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I, I like um, you know, there's some some fairly basic science to it. But uh, you know, um, uh, Dr. Sabina, um, one of the things I'm I'm intrigued about is um, that you know you you've done a lot of research on exoplanets as well, and I obviously want to come back to to the solar system and you know the planetary sciences here. But one of the things we thought back in the '80s, for example, um, was that we we didn't know if systems planetary systems like ours were unusual or were um you know were were common in the universe and it was only through the discovery of exoplanets i think the first one was discovered in 95 96ish um you know and since then with kepler and and more recently uh, james webb you know obviously our understanding of of um you know these exoplanet systems 
is uh, expanded incredibly and pretty much every solar you know star system we look at today we see at least a, a, a single exoplanet and we are seeing uh, you know a lot of binary systems and things like this so you know suddenly you know here we are we've had to adapt to this thing where um you know aligned with a lot of historical view that the earth was this unique planet you know this uh, um this this jewel in in space that there you know was it was so unique in terms of its positioning in the goldilocks zone and so forth and we don't even know if there's ever, even going to be another inhabitable planet out there in the universe and and now suddenly we're exploring this so um you know tell me about being in in that process from a career perspective in terms of as that's gradually opened up how that sort of changed the the science as well yeah absolutely and i actually i like to think of looking at exoplanet systems as kind of looking at other families to figure out how weird your own family is right, right? right like what are things that only your family does that no one else does so so that's definitely the case with exoplanets i think it's been fascinating in particular to see how different the structure of a lot of these exoplanetary systems are, right? Some of them have these giant Jupiter-sized planets really close, close to their parent yeah, yeah. stars. Something that, you know, before just before finding them, we would have argued is impossible. Right. right? We we would have argued that our solar system makes sense because you got to have the small rocky planets near the center and then you got to have the big giant right. gas yep. planets out yep. further. To protect then, the inner planets. Yep. And then also like the amount of gas, there's only you can only grow big enough in the outer solar system to collect the gas to become a giant planet. Interesting. And then poof, we suddenly are starting to see them all over the place. And, and really that's, you know, I know there's a, a bias in that we can detect these giant planets that are orbiting really close to their stars more easily, but they're everywhere. And so you, you needed to kind of rethink the entire planet formation process just by finding these exoplanets. And are we seeing all kinds of configurations or is that classic solar system configuration the template? There are all kinds of configurations out there. Mm. We have to throw out the templates. Oh, wow. Interesting. Now, now tell me, was Jules Verne right? Is the inside of the planet filled with dinosaur bones and lakes and <laughs> mastodons? I mean, it depends on how far you want to go down. But I think Jules Verne was definitely right that there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening deep inside the planet. And so we oh, should very be... Very good answer. Very good answer. should be concerned with it and, and want to study it. So... What what is what is inside the planet? What is what what's what's hidden inside the planet? To use the title of your book, <laughs> yeah. So in Earth, I think we're used to materials behaving a certain way on the surface of the planet, right? You take water. We know how water behaves on the surface of the Earth. You might see it as a liquid in a lake. You might see it a frozen solid. Um, but it's really interesting to think about as you go deeper inside planets. The pressure is increasing. The temperature is increasing. And materials behave completely differently. So, for example, in the inside of Earth, rocks flow, and they're mm -hmm. actually um, convecting, and they're they're moving around almost like a they're not a liquid, but they can actually move around and deform. So that's something that you don't expect from what we see on the surface. Um, in the core of Earth, there's liquid iron, and it's moving around so fast that it's generating this wonderful magnetic field that surrounds us and pr protects us from. Uh, high energy particles from the sun. But how do we know that? Because because mm -hmm. the deepest we can drill, and you can send a drill down a couple miles, I suppose, or dig a mine that's a couple miles deep if you're looking for gold. Yeah. But it, it's hard to get past that, and that's still just the very outer crust, right? So there's there's many other layers, and they get bigger and deeper and thicker, and apparently much hotter. 
Um, so how do you find out what's on the inside of the planet? Yeah, I like to think of it as, so planetary scientists, we use similar methods as maybe a doctor would use. If you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, I've got this, this pain, you know, their first instinct hopefully is not to drill into you to figure out what's causing it. They <laughs> instead fair. use a bunch of scans, right? They use a series of things like CAT scans, MRIs, x-rays, and all of these things can let you image what's going on inside your the human body. The same is true for the earth. So we can use, for example, gravity fields to measure masses inside the earth. We can use magnetic fields to tell about what's going on in the core. We can use seismic waves, which are created when there's an earthquake somewhere on the earth. And we can measure the travel times of these seismic waves through the earth. And that really images the interior of the earth. So we've discovered everything about the deep interior of the earth. A lot of it comes from these imaging or, or scanning techniques that we have. When you say scanning, we tend to think of taking a picture uh, as a kind of scan. But here you're talking about taking wavelengths or vibrations, measuring Mag them. Is it magnetic resonance? Or what's the or radar? Ground so, penetrating radar? All yeah, gra things. ground penetrating radar doesn't go too deep. Yeah, I'll tell you just a little bit down the surface. But no, I'm talking like I would let's focus on seismic waves, for example. Mm -hmm. So this as these sound waves essentially travel through the earth. The speed of the wave is completely related to the material properties. So things like the density of the wave, of the material. So you can sit here on the surface of the earth at a bunch of places, put a bunch of seismometers down in different places. If you know there was an earthquake at a particular location, and then you can just measure at what time do the waves hit all these different places on earth. And from that, you can really map what is the material inside the earth. What's its density? What's its composition? So the wavelengths change when they get to that liquid core. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the the vibrations might change, or they might flatten out. I suppose. They so it's true when you get to boundaries. Um, so just like waves reflect off boundaries, you know, if you have like a, a rock in the in the ocean or something like that, you can tell when there's a kind of a, a hill or something. There's a boundary uh, at boundaries like the mantle core, the core mantle boundary between like the rocky mantle and the iron core. Um, certain waves can't travel through the liquid core. So we notice a sudden disappearance of waves. Um, wave speeds change as they go through there. The oh, so that's how you detect that it's actually liquid. It's yeah. like it absorbs some 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 wavelengths. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about the computational part of your methodology because just about every art yeah. science is uh, a computational uh, science. Yeah. And I'm assuming you're using compute to calculate these wavelengths and create a kind of model of what's on the interior. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk a lot about in your bio and and in your profile about scientific computing, which is you know, not a lot of people understand that you're having to build entire, like almost operating systems and models from scratch to model this stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the types of models I use, let's say when we're trying to understand how Earth generates its magnetic field. We look at, for example, the equations for fluid dynamics, the motions in the core. Those equations are actually really similar to, say, climate models, how you would build a climate model to study the climate. Uh, but then we also say, hey, that liquid in the core is actually electrically conducting. And so we need to put in magnetic equations in there as well. So we take all these equations and we uh, basically find ways to, to get a computer to solve them. Um, this takes some of the most. This takes the most powerful computers in the world in order to do them. Um, even when using those really powerful computers, if we were to try to really model exactly what's happening in the core, there's not enough computer power on the planet to do so. So we have to make some approximations, um, try and figure things out from those. So it's just a really complex system, and we have to um, tackle it sort of sideways as opposed to head on. What, what makes it so mm. complex? Why do you need so much yeah. compute power? 
Yeah. So imagine now uh, you've got a core that's about, let's say, 3,500 kilometers. Mm -hmm. uh, and you start asking, well, what are the scales of the motions in the core? And you start figuring out that the important scales are millimeters thick. The speeds are the speeds of turbulence, essentially. So you just have to basically resolve this core with so many grid spaces, grid points to do it, that you actually do not have enough computer memory on the surface of the earth to do it. Wow. It's wow, fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Does artificial so, intelligence help in any way with the calculations or will it in the, in the future? I think there's a lot of potential for AI in this type of work, in fluid dynamics work. Um, there's When you do these kinds of models, you just create an immense amount of data. Mm -hmm. And you have all this data and you're just like, how am I going to analyze it? What am I going to be looking for? And I think one of the main powers of AI is going to be to find the patterns that we don't notice or we don't right, see. Right. So you could you could unleash in a neural network on it and allow it to use the unstructured data and start to discover yeah. patterns and come back to you. That's an interesting notion. So that's a wide open area for, for research. Is anyone I, doing that right now? Yeah, people are starting. I'm starting to do that, but oh, awesome. right yeah. <laughs> very cool. Right. I, I'm I'm you know I'm interested in the fact that also, you know, as we learn more about planetary structure, um, you know, just even uh from the local solar system and as as we observe these things we're ha we're also having to come up with increasingly understanding of how you know these materials react in sort of exotic states you know states that uh, that are, are not something that we see uh, you know on, on, in the natural world today from the surface of the planet and you know the exposure we have and so modeling things like that that we can't directly observe you're just taking the evidence from but you know um the exotic elements of this th there appears to be a lot of math and physics that drives these sorts of outcomes and understandings rather than sort of obs observational um uh, approach is that true yeah absolutely it's actually i would say that it this type of work can be tackled from all directions and they each inform each other i'll, I'll give you an example um, when we're trying to think about what happens to materials at extreme pressures and temperatures, you can use, for example, fundamental quantum mechanics to ask the question, what happens to an atom of carbon if you stick it at a pressure and temperature this high? And you have to make a lot of approximations to the equations to figure that out. But then you can also go build an experiment and you can find ways um, to uh, take material and squeeze it to really high pressures and temperatures. And we do that in some of the big... Um, particle accelerators that are out there right now because we need really high energies to squeeze the materials. Uh, and from that, we actually discover new phases of materials sometimes even before they're theoretically found or vice versa. Maybe we find something theoretically. I'll give you a, one ex great example is a phase of water, so known as super ionic water, right, that right, it yeah. was predicted for a while, but then only recently have experiments actually created super ionic water and we think it might even exist in, in places like the interiors of Uranus and Neptune, the ice giant planets. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, you know, I am in, interested in, um, like, you know, if we look at the gas giant formations and, and you've talked about the exoplanets and, and so forth, but, you know, we, we are starting to learn more about 
you know, um, particularly Mars. I know you're involved in, um, you know, Mars Insight, I think was yep. was the project you're involved in. Um, you know, we are learning a lot more about our, our neighboring planets. Um, and, you know, I mean, how has that increased um, interest in the field in general as we've got more robots on the surface and so forth? Has that led to an, a, sort of an explosion of interest in this field of physics and science? I would say so, yeah. I think the amazing thing about getting these instruments on other planets like Mars and taking data is you start really being able to ask the questions about what's to do comparative planetology to say, why is Mars this way and Earth is this way? What do we have in common? Why are we different? Uh, for example, you know, at Mars, we did our first, the InSight mission took the first seismic uh, data from another planet, right? We measured right, right, Mars exactly. quakes. And from those Mars quakes, we found a lot of things similar to the Earth and a lot of things not so similar to the Earth. So we can really learn a lot. And I think it's interesting to see that you can use these same techniques, but apply them to very different planets and discover entire new processes there. Yeah, absolutely. But we're going to be, uh, we want to go deeper into the topic of uh, dynamo theory and the oh, magnetic yeah. cores uh, and maybe the possibility of restarting the magnetic core on Mars. So we're going to do that in the second <laughs> half of the show. For those science fiction fans who want to get a little speculative, hang in there. But before we take a break, Sabina, what we love to do is uh, we love to get to know our guests a little bit better. And so Brett will ask you a few quick fire questions. These are just questions about you, uh, the influences when you were a kid, what what, you know, what exposed you to this field and so forth. And, uh, and they're short answers. So uh, take it away, Brett. Welcome to the quick fire round. What was the first time you remember being expo exposed to the concept of uh, planetary science or structure in, in research TV books? Uh, I guess I'd go with like Star Trek, Next Generation. Awesome. Yeah, Star Trek's a very common answer. <laughs> um, what technology do you think has most changed the, the science that you work in? Uh, the tech, it, basically computers, just the amount of power that computers have can use now has really changed things. Awesome. You mentioned earlier that you had some very good advice and that took you down this direction. Perhaps this that's the answer to this question, but is there a scientist or um, you know a researcher that has particularly influenced you to get into this field? Yeah, my first year physics prof in, in undergrad uh, ended up, he, he was a geophysicist. So he was someone who studied the physics of the earth and he used to always tell stories about geophysics when he did examples and that got me interested in the field. Awesome. Is there a prediction or, um, you know, a, or a forecast that someone made that sounded pretty ridiculous and wild early in the process, but we've since found out was accurate? In planetary science? Oh yeah. Yeah, People, yeah absolutely. So for example, um, before the uh, Voyager missions got to Jupiter, uh, there's this famous case of a paper that came out like a month before the spacecraft got there and predicted that the moon Io was going to have a ton of volcanoes actively wow. going off. Um, and lo and behold, we arrived there and it was completely true. So the prediction was based on looking at how much tidal forces were acting on Io because of Jupiter. And they got it perfectly right. That's That's very cool. And the last question is, what do you think we are still yet to learn about uh, the planets that uh, might surprise us in the future? 
Yeah, I think there's that one big question, right? Is there life out there on other planets? And we, in order to answer that, we need to go to some of the planets where we think we see the ingredients for life and really kind of take a really close look. Awesome. And there are plenty of those even in our solar system, you know, especially Absolutely. the ocean ocean planets. Very good. Well, listen, um, you're listening to The Futurists with Rob Tersek and I hosting today. Our guest is Dr. Sabina Sanley. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Hey, you're listening to The Futurist. Welcome back. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Sabina Stanley. And we're talking about what's on the inside of planets. And she is the author of a book called What's Hidden Inside Planets. And there's a part of your practice that I think everybody should know a bit more about because I don't think most people understand it. Uh, They might not even be aware of it. It's about the magnetic fields in planets. Uh, We talked briefly about the liquid core and planet Earth. And that generates a magnetic field, doesn't it? it that's, that's part of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and then help us understand dynamo theory? Yeah, dynamo theory, my favorite subject. Thanks for asking. So uh, I think people have some experience with dynamo theory in their everyday lives. If you've ever had a bike light that you pedal in order to get lit, or if you have a home generator. So the concept is fairly straightforward. You take the energy that's in some sort of motion and you convert that energy into electromagnetic energy that becomes magnetic fields. So if you're on your bike, you're pedaling your bike, that's uh, allowing a current to flow through a wire, which then lights your bike light. So in the cores of planets, what you can do is if you have a region that's a pretty good electrical conductor, so in the Earth, that's going to be liquid iron. In some of the other planets, in Jupiter, it's actually metallic hydrogen. Uh, wow. in, yeah, in Uranus and Neptune, it's ionic water. There's all sorts of cool materials. But if you have a good electrical conductor and it's fluid, it's liquid, so that motions can happen in it on a fairly fast time scale, uh, then you can actually take magnetic fields, use the energy of the motions to create new magnetic fields from the old ones. And, uh, in Earth and in most, and, and in most of the planets, that motion is caused because all the planets are trying to cool down. They formed hot. Their interiors are very hot. Space is cold. So they're all trying to release that heat. And if you've ever kind of put a pot on the stove to cook some soup or something, right? The bottom of the pot's hot, the top's cold. You get the temperature difference enough and you're starting to get motions in that pot, right? Mm. The material at the bottom is hotter. It can expand a little bit in volume. So it becomes less dense and it rises. So it's buoyant. The same is true in the interior of the earth. So the material at the very center of the Earth's core gets hotter, becomes buoyant, and rises. So you get these churning motions happening in the core. And it's those motions that actually create the magnetic field, twisting and turning the current magnetic field through an induction process. And is it driving material up? Is it pushing? Is there pressure from the center of the Earth to push things up to the crust or up to the surface? So it's not, it's not a pressure force. It's really buoyancy. It's really that the lighter stuff wants to float. 
And okay. this is only happening in the core. So material will float, say, from the inner core boundary, where there's like that solid boundary of the inner core, all the way to the core mantle boundary. And then material will cool off a bit and fall back down. So you get churning motions in the innermost half of the Earth. Okay, Didn't you so see the movie what? Core, Rob? Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. thanks. This is my favorite movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, really? I thought so. I thought so. I thought we had to talk about it yeah. at some point. Um, so um, I thought you were going to talk about Brendan Fraser and the voyage to the center of the earth. No, but actually, moments. my favorite is the the nineteen fifty um, two version or whatever it was. The original. Uh, yeah, the classic. That, I mean, I used to every Christmas. It would be that's what I'd watch with my kids when they were growing up. It was it was literally my one of my favorite movies. So, in fact, I think uh, maybe for Thanksgiving tomorrow. My What's the uh, journey to the center of the earth? So, <laughs> there you go. A uh, grand not, tradition. Not, not necessarily scientifically uh, very accurate, but um, yeah. Uh, when when was the, the uh, I, I guess, um, you know, you talked about the um, Voyager missions back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, but when was it that we really started to think about the structure of the, uh, the, the, the other planets in the solar system in terms of the rocky core concept, the gas core and so forth? Yeah, I, I think it's, again, a kind of a complex process through a bunch of things, right? If you, the more we learned about the Earth's interior, we started asking the question, hmm, well, what are these other planets like? And we had some clues. There are some things that we can look at another planet and start to tell uh, what's going on inside. So for example, uh, all the planets spin. That's why we have the day on Earth. And when a planet spins, um, it can get bulgy at its center. So the equator ends up being uh, wider than the pole-to-pole -pole distance, for example. So that equatorial bulge, how bulgy it gets, is completely dependent on the interior structure of a planet. So you can stare at a planet like the, uh, Saturn, for example. Saturn has the biggest bulge of any planet in the solar system. And... Because of that big bulge, we actually know that it's got a concentration of rocky materials at its center, for example, and then it has this gas envelope surrounding it. So we can actually start learning about things by looking at their shape. And so that's sort of one of the first things you can do, because that's the easiest thing you can do um, with just sort of a telescope from Earth. Uh, then you can start asking, well, when did we learn that other planets had magnetic fields, for example? Uh, Interestingly, we learned that Jupiter had a magnetic field back in the 1960s before we even left planet Earth. That's because Jupiter's magnetic field is so strong um, that it beams radio emissions to Earth. Right. So, right. so uh, you can actually, in Maryland, they detected radio emissions that came from Jupiter back in the 1960s. Uh, and so we knew, huh, there's another planet that has a magnetic field. Why, how is that happening? And then you started thinking about what was going on in the interior of that planet that way. Very cool. So, you know, I'm, in my mind, I'm getting confused between gravity and, and the magnetic field because mm -hmm. they're distinct concepts, obviously, but they're connected in the sense that it creates this kind of field around the planet, right? And it, it does affect the stuff on the surface. Uh, it certainly has to have an effect on atmosphere. Can you talk a little bit about um, how some of the ways we might experience that magnetic field. Well, and also you know, we can talk yeah. about the loss of Mars's atmosphere and what this we're relation to its core we're, was. We're yeah. totally we're, going I'm not there, talking about re-spinning the core yet. We're not getting to that yet, but we can. We're going there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go, ahead, go for so. it, Sabina. So you're absolutely right that gravity and magnetic 
magnetism are they're two fields. They're both fields. They have similarities in that way in that they they create a force even though you don't have to be in contact with anything, right? So we call it like action at a distance. Um, but they do very different things. Gravity happens because of mass. Anything with mass will have a gravity field. Um, magnetism, you need to have moving charges going around, right? So it's a different sort of thing. But in terms of what they do for us on a planet surface, right? Gravity allows us to stick to it. <laughs> And magnetic fields, uh, if you have a planet like Earth, which has this beautiful, strong magnetic field surrounding us, that magnetic field can actually protect the surface and the atmosphere of the planet from high energy particles that come from the sun in what's called the solar wind. So there are these really fast moving high energetic particles that beam at us from the sun whenever it has a solar flare or coronal mass ejection. And also there's cosmic rays that come from outer space. And these things head towards us but a lot of the, the particles are all charged in these materials. And so when you have charged particles, they have to behave a certain way when they get to magnetic fields. And so rather than kind of going through a magnetic field, our magnetic field actually acts as a shield because particles get trapped to spiral along them. And so all this kind of wind that's heading towards us, these high energy radiation particles actually end up spiraling along our magnetic field lines um, and then, then end up heading closer to the surface near the polar regions where the, the magnetic poles are. Uh, but if you imagine what would happen if Earth didn't Hence have the a magnetic aurora. field. Yeah, yeah. Hence the aurora, exactly. So we get this beautiful light show from a process that's actually kind of saving us here on the surface all the time. That's that's evidence of the magnetic field right there. You wouldn't see the aurora without it. Yeah, absolutely. And we've detected aurora at other planets as well. That's another way to detect magnetic fields around other planets. Right. Yeah, we saw recently the uh, sort of hexagon-shaped aurora mm -hmm. on on Saturn, which was, uh, was it Saturn or Juno with Jupiter? I can't remember. I think it was Saturn, the yeah, hexagon yeah. Saturn. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Which uh pretty pretty cool to sort of see how imaging is expanding our understanding of, of, of this stuff. Um, so it's yeah, creates I, a kind of shield around the planet. That's that's yeah, part of the function yeah. of magnetic core. Magnetic shield, yeah. Now let's talk about Mars because Brett's, Brett's been chomping at the bit to get to this. Um, he's a big space geek, and actually, it's hard to hard to keep us on track here because we want to get to that part so badly. Now is the time to go. I've for been it. very, really I've been very measured, dude. You, you have, know, I haven't you, jumped straight into this. You've done an admirable job of restraining yourself, and I appreciate it. Well, let's talk about Mars because Mars is a little different. It doesn't have the magnetic core, right? So it's missing a dynamo. That's absolutely right. So although Mars doesn't have a global magnetic field like we have here on Earth today, so there's no dynamo active at the center of Mars right now, there are rocks on the surface of Mars that are magnetized. And the way they got magnetized was that when they Through formed- the magnetic field, yeah. Yeah, when they formed, Mars had a dynamo. So we actually know that Mars had a dynamo long ago in its past. Did it cool off? Like what, what, what happened? This is the great question, right? Oh, so, <laughs> well, so we have, we, we know what would cause a dynamo to shut off. We don't know ex exactly what the situation was for Mars, but if you remember back to the ingredients needed for a dynamo, okay. So you need to have a good electrical conductor. That's not going to change. The core of Mars is still iron. You need to have motions in a liquid iron conductor. So possibilities that were early on uh, suggested for why it doesn't is maybe the core solid. Uh, turns out that's probably not true. So it's probably liquid. Every The data we've taken from Mars has told us actually it is liquid. Um, so for some reason, the liquid in, in the core of Mars is not convecting fast enough to generate the magnetic fields. So it's basically just not cooling fast enough anymore. But it's not cool. It's not like it's a cold planet. It's There's not cold. Warm. Yeah, it's still warm, but it's not cooling fast enough. We, Imagine... we need to send Aaron Eckhart and Hilary Swank up there to restart <laughs> it. Yes. 
<laughs> Sorry. Very true. Um, Some people but, are hoping uh, we'll send Elon Musk there. In a, yeah, with, a way yeah, to with Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I um, so we we are now, uh, you know, I, I, again, I, you're the expert in this, so you, you tell us. But we're now understanding, uh, of course, that as the magnetic field, um, as that dynamo process on Mars um, slowed and came to a halt, it affected the atmosphere of Mars, and there was a loss of atmosphere uh, on Mars. These are directly correlated. Is that is that correct? Am I understanding that? So it is definitely true that there's a loss of atmosphere on Mars. Early Mars had a thick atmosphere. Um, it's definitely true that Mars early on had a strong magnetic field. What we don't know is whether the loss of the magnetic field actually resulted in the loss right. of the atmosphere. Interesting. So it sounds like a good story and it makes sense in a lot of ways, but there's some things we have to be a little bit careful of. So I'll give you an example. Venus doesn't have a magnetic field. It has an incredibly thick atmosphere. Right, so it's right. not a requirement. You don't have to have a magnetic field to have a thick atmosphere. So the are other thing, and Mercury more rocky and they're uh, more dense as planets? Uh, Venus is more dense because it's just bigger. And M Mercury is more dense because it's it's a weird, Mercury is just weird. It has mostly iron core. It has a very little of the rocky layer around it. So you are right that they are more dense. But we don't think that that's really um, related to, say, whether they have a magnetic field or an atmosphere and stuff like that. Yeah. The MAVEN mission at Mars actually has been studying the magnetosphere and the atmosphere for a while now. And they were really sent there to answer the question, how fast is the atmosphere escaping on Mars? And is that related to kind of when the magnetic field went away? And the, you know, the, the question I think is still unanswered. We, mm. it's a complicated process blowing off an atmosphere when you don't have a magnetic field, it can be quite complicated to understand mm. that relationship there. Here's, here's one you may not know, Rob. Did you Go know ahead. that Mercury has a tail? Oh, It's like a cometary tail. So um, it releases uh, sodium ions, I think. Is that right, Dr. Sabine? Yes, um, that is correct. And so you can actually, right now, because Mars is quite close to us, you can actually see that uh, it's sort of that no yellow-orange phosphorus tail uh, following Mercury when it's because it's close to the sun right now. Now, is uh, is there like an on-off switch on the planet Mars? Are we going to be able to go there and restart this uh, this magnetary field, start the dynamo again? Or is or it Elon important to? a big yeah. enough battery, can we jumpstart the planet Mars? All right. So I don't think we can start the core again. At least there's nothing in our technology that could do that. Uh, however, if what we're really interested in is having a magnetic shield to protect the, like, let's say we wanted to have life kind of us walking around on the surface and we want protection from the radiation environment. People have gotten a little bit clever on how you do this. So for example, um, there's a idea out there that what you could do instead is put a giant magnet at one of the, the um, it basically in front of the planet Mars, some Lagrange distance points. away at the, yeah. yeah, one of the Lagrange points. And that magnet would create a magnetic shield around the planet as well. So you might not have to go to the core or do anything to the core to get a magnetic shield like we're talking about. Now, of course, this is all kind of really out there for future um, things to work on. But that seems we to me the, the, the most kind of the most currently viable way to do it would be that. That, that doesn't sound viable to me. Gigantic magnet in space, but 
Okay, but you we'll know, think you. about it. I mean, like you got all the energy you need with solar energy to charge a magnet. It's, it's, you know, uh, I mean, I think it, it just depends on what sort of exotic materials. It'd have to be pretty big, mm-hmm. and you know, the cost of constructing it would be enormous. But you know, if you can mine the asteroid belt for precious metals, well, you know, there you go, theoretically, right? Um, I, Dr. Sabine, uh, you know, um, let's let's go back to the the uh, um, exoplanet stuff. Um, you know, just just for the purpose of, um, I, I'd like to talk about what it is um, that has accelerated this field of learning. Um, in, in a, you know, so we've had, we have Kepler, we have the James Webb uh, Space Telescope and so forth. Um, you must have been excited to, to have these technologies in place, obviously the Mars InSight lander and so forth as well. Um, but how has that changed um, th- this field? How's it changed the way you're working with your your colleagues in the field and so forth as well? And, and how has it accelerated our understanding of planetary sciences? Yeah, you know, I still remember the day I was in college and my astronomy prof walked into class and announced they found an exoplanet. So I remember that day when, oh, it, when wow. it first happened. It's it's like burned into my memory. Uh, I think exoplanets just offer us a complete test bed of any, like any theory you come up with for the earth or planets in our solar system, you can now test because there are thousands of other planets kind of like them out there, mm-hmm. right? So you have to, you if you have an explanation for why earth does X, if you find any other, if your explanation suggests that any other planet out there also does X, you can now test your theories. So it's amazing. We, it's no longer the scenario where we only have one data point to test, right? Um, for example, a lot of people, what I'm most excited about, um, a lot of people talk about how having plate tectonics on Earth is really important for having life on Earth because of how much plate tectonics kind of regulates our environment and our climate, um, allows the magnetic field to be generated because it allows the Earth to remove heat. Well, what if we could actually figure out if other planets have plate tectonics, um, for example, exoplanets? Now, we can't see surfaces of planets yet in exoplanets because they're so far away. But with JWST, we can start measuring the atmosphere. We can measure the atmosphere with spectro- spectro- spectrography or whatever. Spectroscopy, yeah. yeah. Spectroscopy. Close enough. Thank Close you. enough. <laughs> um, yeah. And so if you start learning about what's in the atmosphere, um, because every, most of the stuff in the atmosphere at some point got cycled through the interior of the planet, you can start learning about the interior of the planet too. And so I think there are probably um, signs out there of plate tectonics on other exoplanets if we if we can go look for those. There's also chemistry in the atmosphere that might indicate uh, suitability for, for life as well, right? Absolutely. Right. If an alien was flying by Earth and could just see our atmosphere, it could tell life was here on Earth. Right. Not only I mean, not only life, it could tell that it advanced civilization was here because of all the industrial pollutants that are out there. Um, but you can imagine that knowing whether or not a planet has an oxygen based atmosphere, that's a sign of life because oxygen on our planet comes from plants, photosynthesis. Right. Uh, so you have to be a little bit careful because there might be other ways to create oxygen that don't Im- imply life. And so right now, a lot of scientists are trying to tease out what are all the mechanisms to generate these certain molecules that we associate with life so that we can make sure to kind of toss out any of the ones that um, aren't perfect indicators that there must be life on an exoplanet. It's a fascinating field. It just uh, it seems like 
um, so much is being unlocked right now in terms of scientific understanding. And, um, you know, I can't, you know, as, as we expand our, you know, every time we look at a new star, we, we seem to get a new exoplanet now or two, um, or, or few, a few, um, but even just, uh, very close to us at, uh, you know, uh, Alpha Centauri and Proxima, um, very close. Centauri. Yeah. Just around we, the corner. <laughs> we have and we have exoplanets and um earth-like exoplanets as well. So um how how soon before do you, you think we can image an exoplanet? Like we okay, we've imaged them like you know, <laughs> a couple of pixel size, but actually be able to uh, get a photo of what an exoplanet might look like. Yeah. Uh you know, I can't imagine having the technology in our own solar, to, to be in our own solar system and image them in another solar system. So I actually think probably the soonest we'll do that is if a mission gets sent out to Alpha Centauri right. um, through like a light sail, something and, and actually measures right. it there. So I think that's our best bet at images of exoplanets. Yeah, how do they measure them? I, I remember reading about this, but it slipped my mind. How do we currently detect exoplanets? It's like some aberration in a wavelength or something that's... yeah. There are several, so there's several methods you can use now. So one of them essentially is every time an exoplanet is orbiting a star, um, mm -hmm. the star is wobbling a bit. And so you look at the light curve of the star and if it, it wobbles in a certain way to say it's going back and forth, you know, there's a planet around it and you can figure out the mass of that planet. Other mm -hmm. ways, if a planet's passing in front of a star, it's going to kind of provide a little shadow for a bit. So you can see blinks. Transitory uh, in, method. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So you get blinks of light. And some of the kind of funkier methods out there is gravitational lensing. So we can even see um, blips if a planet passes in front of a star, we can see bending of the light from that when we detect here at Earth. So we can actually do gravitational lensing to detect exoplanets. So those right. tell you Seriously, that there's I'm objects in relationship out, to other objects moving, but they don't tell you what's on the object. They don't give you, that's why we can't image, uh, we can't use those techniques to get a picture. Yeah, exactly. The, so the closest probably you can think of is from the spectroscopy you can do in a transit. So when you have a transit and the planet is passing in front of the star, imagine you have a thick atmosphere on that planet. The atmosphere is going to pass in front of the star before the planet does. And so the photons of light that are coming from the star um, might, some of them might still get be able to get through in the atmosphere, whereas others don't. So you can, for example, possibly measure like the thickness of an atmosphere. Um, versus the planet. So there's some stuff we can start doing. And maybe with gravitational lensing and some other techniques like this, we could get some some more clarity. Okay, Dr. Sabine, this is the part of the show as we're wrapping up. We we really like to get a little bit sci-fi. So here's, here's what I want to put to you. Project yourself forward now, 2040, 2050. Think outside of the box mm -hmm. in your field. Um, what do you think we might discover between now and then, um, you know, about planetary science that could change our view of the universe? All right, I'm going to be bold. So there is a mission that is planned to go to Saturn's moon Titan. The mission's yep. called Dragonfly. And Titan, in my opinion, is one of the best places to go look for life in the solar system. So I will predict that uh, dragonfly will detect signs of life or no i'll be both dragonfly will detect signs of life at titan awesome yeah well, there's wow. lots of organic great. chemistry going on there mm -hmm. so that's that's great so say it again more boldly so you're predicting that we're going <laughs> to find signs of life tell us again for the we're going to find signs of life on the moon titan in the 20 late 2030s early 2040s 
Awesome. No, late Fantastic. 2040s. <laughs> okay, that's the boldest prediction we've had on this show. That's so the soundbite. That's the soundbite for the show right <laughs> thank there. Thank you for putting a date on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Sabine, um, how can people follow the work you're doing at John Hopkins and uh, your publications and so forth? How can we stay in touch with the work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you, people are always welcome to on my website, but I would recommend people start by reading the book, What's Hidden Inside Planets?, uh, I try to give a really good kind of rundown of everything in there. Um, I also am excited to, I've done a great courses course called A Field Guide to the Planet. So people can check that out as well. If you like kind of like at learning lectures at home. I'm going to go check so, that out. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fantastic. Well, Dr. Sabine Stanley, thank you for joining us on The Futurist today. It's been uh, mind expanding. Thanks so much. This was fun. And I totally geeked out. Uh, Rob knew it was going to happen, but uh, please, please stay in it. touch. And if if there are some, um, you know, big news coming out in the space or something like that, we'd love to have you back on to talk about that. But uh, I've enjoyed the show immensely. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. This was fun. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to this week's show. And a uh, big shout out to Brett King for organizing this episode. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Stanley, for joining us. And a big shout out to our crew at Provoke Media. Uh, we are grateful for the services of our engineer, Kevin Hershon, our producer, Lisbeth Severance, and the whole crew at Provoke. They make the show possible. And so do you, our friends and fans at home who are listening to the show. Your insights, your suggestions, your recommendations, and your questions make our show better. So we appreciate that. If you like the show, give us a five-star review. That helps other people find it. And tell a friend about it. Uh, thank you all for listening. Happy holidays to everybody. And um, we will see you. Next week with another futurist. We'll see you in in the the future. Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.